I want to dedicate this talk to all beings everywhere (coughs) who are being persecuted. (coughs) I'm aware of the deep split that we all live with. On the one hand, there is an enormous amount of suffering in the world, an enormous amount of persecution. (coughs) There is tremendous, tremendous pain. There is the death of our brothers and sisters, unnecessarily from illness the death of children unnecessarily from malnutrition. Many, many millions of people who have suffered torture in very extreme conditions, or one form of persecution and another. And then there is our pain, the pain of each one of us that is sitting here in this room. And there is the tremendous difficulty (coughs) of living with this reality, the reality of... Can you hear me? (laughs) The reality of the pain outside of us and the pain inside of us. And the reality that the Buddha said that all things begin in the mind. And how these link up. And how the questions of anger that we thought about this morning link to this reality. In a way, the suffering that I've experienced in my life also feels like an enormous gift. Not that I would have said this years ago. When I was a teenager, I tried to kill myself. And I was institutionalized in a mental hospital. And I said to the psychiatrist there, Either you give me enough pills so that I'm unconscious or I'm going to kill myself. That's the only deal I'm going to make with you. And he did. He gave me a, a great combination of delazine and triptazole and valium and um, a couple of other things. And for four months, I didn't know what was going on. And I didn't know who I was and I couldn't talk. And slowly, for whatever reason, I started to come out of this very, very deep depression and and space of self-hatred, and I stopped taking the pearls. And I started saving them, just putting them away. You had to 
you had to go through this room and the nurse would give you a cup of water and then another nurse would give you the pearls. And I'd take the cup of water and put the pearls under my tongue. And then I'd swallow the water and then go into my room and spit the pearls out. And I realized that if I was going to get out of mental hospital, that I'd better play the game. And I put on makeup and I wore skirts and I joined the group therapy sessions that happened every afternoon and I was a good girl. And in another month I got out of hospital and I went into a halfway house. And then I went into a manic high. <laughs> and everything was totally beautiful and wonderful. And one evening I realized that I really wanted to, I really wanted to be lovers with this woman. And um, I very tentatively asked her if she would come into my room for a cup of tea or something to that, ex to that effect. And she said no. And it triggered this very deep um, place of self-hatred again. And I decided that I didn't want to live, that this really was it. And I started taking all these antidepressants that I had saved up. And um, so I was taking them down with a glass of water in this room in the halfway house. And as I was taking these um, antidepressants, this voice said to me, you don't want to die. And I kind of stood up and said, what do you mean you don't want to die? I don't want to die. And it was said, no, you don't want to die. And then came actually an array of all these men, my father and the psychiatrist and a couple of boyfriends and other men in my life. And I realized that I wanted to kill them instead of me. <laughs> so I'm telling the story because <laughs> it relates it relates to the question of anger that was talked about and the healing of anger because I realized that I was very angry and that actually at that point I wasn't angry with myself. I was angry with these internalized figures inside of me and it was that realization that actually turned my life around because I stopped taking the pearls and I self-consciously went on a journey to explain the anger, this tremendous anger that I felt that was so strong that when it was turned towards myself, which is the way anger is usually conditioned in women in this culture, it was enough to kill. And so first my journey went into politics because I was a student at that time and there was the student movement in England, which was a little behind the student movement here. This was in the early 70s. And Marxism and the production of knowledge and who's creating knowledge for who and how we're understanding things was the kind of central theme in, um, in the classes I was taking. And so that was the first step. And that was one of the ways where I started to work with my anger or with the deep self-hatred that I experienced. And it was helpful. It was helpful to understand one piece 
of this complex, you know, of why things work the way they work. But it was very uncomfortable living still with the feelings, right? With the feelings there. And it was very, it was still unclear to me what was true and what wasn't true. And so to really cut a long story short, because I only have another few minutes, <laughs> um, I came to this practice. And what I loved about this practice so much is that it spoke directly to what my experiences have been. And that is, very honestly, a lot of my experiences in life have been very painful. And that doesn't mean to say that there hasn't been tremendous joy and acknowledgement of the beauty of my life, of our lives, and of the world around. But I want to acknowledge also that it's been very deeply painful for me. The reality of sexual abuse, which is one reality I've experienced, has been enormously painful and fragmenting. And it was the Buddha's words about coming to acknowledge this deeply that felt so liberating for me. Because it was saying, finally, I don't have to split, I don't have to pretend. That actually in order to heal, I can come to fully acknowledge the suffering that I'm experiencing. It was those words 13 years ago that really drew me to the, the practice. And it's those words that still really deeply resonate for me because I find 13 years later that I still am in places where I need to be invited again to stand together as a community and to stand with myself in acknowledgement of the deep pain that's there in our lives and of the deep pain that each one of us experiences. And I find that it is when I turn away from this, when I shut down to it, that then I start to split and create the type of relationships of hatred that are around me already. For it is the split that was in my father that created the impetus for the sexual abuse I experienced. It was because he wasn't in relationship to what was going on inside of him. And I find the incredible challenge just here, now, sitting with you all, still to hold the pain that's sometimes there for me and not to split in the ways that the mind can do and objectify the pain into hatred and rationalize that hatred into enemies. We are the object of hatred. We objectify ourselves sometimes and as has already been spoken, we are the object of hatred. We are the victims of enormous amount of negative energy 
of people who haven't had the possibility of coming into connection with their own pain. Their mechanism of splitting off their pain is no different than ours. We do the same thing. We split off our pain and we hate. And we hate them back. I know we all do. We spoke of it. We hate them back. We hate our partners and we hate ourselves. And I don't think that this process in itself is negative in the same way that I don't think any experience in itself is negative. It's negative when we believe it. It's negative when we take the story to be the whole truth and not part of the process. And I feel like I'm in a tremendous struggle around it because when I experience the pain of our community and what homophobia means, when I experience my own pain as an incest survivor, it is incredibly difficult not to move into hatred. And it is incredibly difficult not to justify that hatred. It takes the deepest commitment and reconnection with my pain to hold me steady and to know that in the end our healing is to open fully to the pain and to take back, to reconnect to the hatred and the objectification of our pain and anger. The possibility is one where we acknowledge what is difficult and we hold the vision of a community, of our community, that is inspired by the first precept of non-harming. That we know we're in process. We know that we have these feelings. We know sometimes that we even lose it, as Eric says. We lose it and we act out. But we also know deep inside of us, and that is the reason we're here, is our recommitment to a spiritual practice, to our own healing which demands that we are caring, which demands that we are non-hating, and which demands that we are non-harming. And so even though we lose our way, and even though we're struggling sometimes, lost in the middle of the process, somehow we're here together with each other in reminding each other and holding it together for each other that overarching this process is the one of non-harming and the one of caring. This gives us the possibility of creating a community that is a reflection of what is pure in our hearts. It re-empowers us to know that not only are we victims, but also we are powerful in our capacity to turn around what has been tremendously difficult 
and use it to create something which is new and beautiful and liberating. And that is a community of relationships that acknowledges the pain as well as the vision. May we each have the strength to open to our pain, to be honest and to acknowledge our process wherever we are, and to stay rooted in our vision of caring and non-harming. Thank you. Let's just sit for a moment. I wanted to start with a quotation I found recently. Um, just wanted to share it with you. It's from the Marquis de Sade, <laughs> who said, All creatures are born isolated and with no need of one another. Mm. So he was a happy man.
Did everyone hear them? Just a request that um, because women are not safe in our culture uh, to go without shirts, uh, a request for the men here to support their sisters by keeping their shirts on. Is that a fair synopsis? When I was at IMS, this was a debate that went around and around and around with the staff because they said, if we can't take off our shirts, then it's not fair that you do, or let us take off our shirts. I was part of that debate, and uh, uh, at, at IMS, and actually where I stood on it is I, I felt that um, it felt to me as if to support the liberation of one gender, it, um, it wouldn't be useful to restrict another gender, and my feeling was we should all take our shirts off. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and I'm delighted to report that the state of New York uh, now supports that to some degree. Uh, women are now allowed to go topless in the state parks of New York, and there have been a number of uh, gatherings of women doing that uh, as, a, as a, a legal way of breaking down um, this form of discrimination. Uh, please. Uh, I wasn't going to bring this up, but uh, since actually you, she kind of empowered me to, to bring it up. Yeah. Speak loudly if you would. Um, I would, uh, I have a friend, a very good friend, who is bisexual, and I'm a little bit uncomfortable that this conference did not extend in the title of the, uh, of the conference that bisexual people were included, were invited here, mm-hmm. and, um, uh, I realize this is a very sensitive issue for a lot of gay men and a lot of lesbians, Um, but I have been very much influenced by my friend who um, has educated me as to how bisexuals are neither neither accepted in the gay community nor in the straight community and are kind of in a place in between. And um, so, I would just like to uh, encourage uh, whoever, if you do another conference like this, or whoever, to be inclusive in the um, title of of the conference. <coughs> I feel a little bit uh, a little bit uh, different about gay and free when I know that it's. Ex- when it's not involved so inviting my bisexual brothers and sisters. Um, so I just throw that out as something that I would appreciate being considered in the future. I know also that there are uh, bisexual people here today and um, I know I went to a conference, uh, a Boston conference of, of men recently and it was a, it was a men's conference and the question was asked, well, who's gay and who's straight? But no one asked who is bisexual. And then the, then the point was brought up later, and sure enough, there were several bisexual men in the group. 
And if they, if Edna had not been asked, then they would have not even been recognized. So I would just like to put that out. Thank you. Thank you. <coughs> I am... Um, myself am in a process of um, exploring your request. Um, and I d- and I don't feel like I've come to any um, real clarity about it and um, I really appreciate the request because for me it supports a very deep investigation into um, what does it mean to be gay and where's that in relationship to bisexuality and what are my feelings about it and how much are conditioned and how much are coming from a true space of clarity and wisdom and what do I need to honor and what not, do you know? And um, um, and I just want to acknowledge something that's very strange with the question for me, which is, as you spoke, I noticed a contraction in my body around it, you know. And I don't know exactly where that's coming from, because for me it brings up the whole question of what's called identity politics. And what is identity politics in relationship to a spiritual practice? Do you know? Because identity politics, in a way, as I understand it, is um, holding on to a concept, gay, you know, or woman, and um, enthroning it, making it the best of all the diverse possibilities of life. And. Um, I don't see one being essentially better than another, do you know? But I do understand that in my own process of healing, naming my process and acknowledging it socially and being part of a community that supports that process, especially when so much is unnamed and still silent to me, has been tremendously healing. And that process feels very much part of being a lesbian and being a Buddhist because they're both the same thing. They're part of coming to awareness of who am I, you know, and what are my experiences and what is my truth. And both are often very hidden from, um, from myself, you know, and that's why what we're doing today feels so beautiful. And I haven't yet come to... Um, I haven't yet come to um, a clarity around what that means in terms of um, um, opening, you know, um, being in a process that names a relationship that in some ways is different, you know, because as I've gone to conferences of bisexuality because I've wanted to understand, you know, I see, oh, here's a different phenomena like an orange and an apple, do you know? Lesbians and gay men are not bisexual and bisexuals are not lesbian and gay men, 
yet some of the issues are the same. And so I feel like I'm really in a process, process of exploration around it, and um, um, and it's been a, a, a very um, healing one. So thank you for bringing it up. Um, actually, Irina and I have uh, had uh, s- several discussions, I think, on this point in terms of offering these retreats. Um, actually, I would like to hear from the sisters uh, on this subject for a very specific reason. Um, I, I think one of the things that these lesbian and gay retreats have um, provided, maybe the most important thing, is a sense of safety. Um, that women who have been abused through sexual energy for millennia can come together with men here with the knowledge that we're very unlikely to use our sexuality to abuse you. And I'm just wondering if there's any sense about if if this if bisexuals were included here whether you would feel less safe. Please. Um, I would I, I would like to say something and then that um, in advertising or putting out that a gathering is one thing or another or anything and doing it straight, that um, you're setting up a framework for saying this is a safe gathering for certain people. And my lover and I had this discussion that uh, last night on the way home, if this was a straight gathering, would we have felt as safe? And there's this underlying understanding for me that this, the nature of this gathering is a spiritual gathering. And if the precepts are followed or understood, then it should remain a safe gathering no matter who's there. 
In my experience, there isn't a separation between political and spiritual, between daily life and sitting and walking, in the sense that each moment is a choice, and it's a choice we make to honor what's our process is and what the process around us is, um, or to react, right? And sometimes we're caught in reaction and that's okay, then we acknowledge that. It's enormously difficult and that's why we don't have these conversations, not to react. And yet, in this context, it's a wonderful invitation to really realign ourselves with the refuges and the precepts, you know, of being there, of watching our process, of honoring our process, and of giving space to honor the process and the diversity and difference around us. Having Often I found that entering into discussions like this, different and difficult feelings arise for me, and I'm in aversion to it, and so I back off. And I feel often that's why I haven't taken as much responsibility as I could have in the past to give my energy to a political process that really impacts me a lot in this culture. 
I use the rationalization of feeling that I'm not empowered and so or I can't do anything. I just wanted to honor this process by saying what we're doing here by talking about something that many of us have very strong feelings about and talking about it in the way we are, which is giving space for everyone to express what their truth is, is very difficult and also very healing and very beautiful and a tremendous invitation for us to become and to come very close to ourselves and to learn more about ourselves. It's in this process of feeling the contractions and the responses and the voices that we really come to see what our truth is. There is no other way and this is such a wonderful environment to do so. Jenny, yes. Um, <clears throat> a couple of things. When I was thinking, I too don't really want to spend lots and lots of time talking about this shirt issue. And yet, if I thought, okay, so if we don't talk about it, where does that lead me? And I realized it leads me to these things hanging. So, and I thought, oh, it, it seems that for me, then I thought, oh, well, if for, and here it's almost like the rules are just reversed from other retreats, where you have all the women in one dorm and all the men in one dorm, and the men all sit on this side and the women sit on that side. And I've heard people talk about in their spiritual practice that, yes, I think it's really a good idea that we have the men separated from the women, and I thought, oh, really? <laughs> that, that's an interesting concept of sexuality. But I'm thinking, again, that the precepts are so beautiful, they really help you. And I'm thinking of the precepts about not wearing jewelry, and in a sense, or when you're doing them, like you dress dark, it's like you do not call attention in a way, not that you, you know, I feel like I want to fully inhabit my body, but you're not advertising. And if for a woman, it's stimulating to see a woman with a bare chest. Perhaps it's stimulating for a man to see a man with a bare chest. So my sense is that going back, yeah. Excuse me. Let's. I think it's really important to let one person speak at a time. And again, and not the temptation, I feel like the precepts and how, when you set up a retreat, it is really set to reduce the amount of temptations. I don't feel like we need to introduce them. They're all in our head. I mean, I don't have to look for any. I don't need any given to me. Um, so I just was thinking it seems related to the precepts that go beyond the five and the to eight precepts about, um, you know, just not wearing jewelry, not Thank you. Thank you. Yes. 
Um, I'm glad that the issue came up through uh, sexual politics because I'm in, uh, involved in some, and it tears me apart the, the time that's spent um, on the politics when there's a group in common for a certain issue, and so much time is spent on the politics, and I don't myself uh, particularly understand it. Um, and sometimes I feel hurt, hurt by it, and it's a big thing in my life. And I'm glad the issue was raised. For example, I'm in a group um, where it was decided that, no, that the group couldn't be named <coughs> after a white male because we live in a society that's <laughs> by white males. <coughs> so I felt um, uh, discriminated against. I felt that I was in a second class group. Um, and <coughs> I felt that that became an issue which was not why this group was formed and became a real uh, obstacle uh, and very painful for me because the work we have to do in the group is very important. And in a lot of little groups, groups so much time is spent on um, political identification. And it is a spiritual issue for me because I experience great grief in the time that's spent on it. Because to me, um, on one hand, I say I don't care, but then when someone says, well, you can't include white men in the consideration of the name of this group, uh, it changed me. Um, and so we kind of stumbled on this issue, but for me, it's a real big one. And I have to face it <laughs> tomorrow.
I look at that identity in a way as also very limited of other relationships, relationships, the possibility of developing relationships with women, uh, or defining the kinds of relationships that I have with men. And part of me thinks, you know, just it's another label, it's another very easy way to kind of organize my experience. my spiritual practice now is to find a way to get that mental concept out of it so that I can be as a human being and not as a human being. The other thing I wanted to say, I guess I may have participated in this conversation because I took my shirt off and I started to sweat up. And that is that I welcome everyone <laughs> and and that I think that this is a lot of us. You know, some of us get stimulated, and some of us, you know, I I see many more bare male sex than I see female sex. Uh, but you know, I'm sure that something comes up for me in those experiences <coughs> of being here 
Um, I have a different response to that is to, to notice the response, the desire, the aversion, whatever. And I would also be happy to I think um, uh, part of what part of what our task here is to create a safe container for each other, and it m- may be best uh, for us to keep our shirts on today. If we, uh, we have to end now, but I, I just wanted to share with you something that came up during the teachers' conference here um, two weeks ago. There were 120 of us, and we had an agenda, but what really kind of pushed through the agenda was a, an immense amount of emotional pain that people felt, uh, mostly from uh, having had uh, abuse uh, histories with their spiritual teachers. And so what we ended up being was a, we created a container for that pain to be expressed. And uh, we, we had some wonderful resources. Uh, Michael Mead was uh, there with us for some some of the time, and uh, Clarissa Estes, what's her, her middle? Pincola Estes. Thank you. Um, also was there with us. <coughs> and what they were saying, I think, was really very true to the Dharma. Uh, Michael Mead said that the closer you come to the light, the, the bigger the shadow is. You know, if you put your hand toward a lamp, uh, you get this huge shadow on the ceiling. And that's precisely what happens to us in this practice, that as we go closer to freedom, the shadow comes forward more and more. And I think, I think we've, we've come to a whole other level of relating to each other today than we had yesterday. And that's because we're feeling safer with each other, and therefore the shadow is freer to come forward. Um, so although this may be painful and difficult, it's also, uh, I think, immensely useful. So, to be continued. invite us all to stand up. We're about to move into a walking session, but um, I feel the need to connect first um, together as a circle. So let's stand up and um, hold hands. Taking a moment to acknowledge the standing and the hands touching and giving space for what lies in our hearts, allowing it to be there.
as part of the unfolding. And reconnecting with that intention or surrendering into the intention of opening to all of it. Not just what we like, but all of it as part of the transformation. And allowing the sound R to enable this to happen. Ah. And just keep continuing. Thank you.